Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 309. What stopped you? She asked. I realized it would just irritate you, I said, and I wasn't looking forward to paying the money changer's fee. I fought the urge to look longingly at the fireplace. I've spent a lot of time trying to think of some gesture that might make a suitable apology to you. You decided it would be best to walk here during the worst weather of the year? I decided it would be best if we talked, I said. The weather was just a happy accident. Devi scowled and turned toward the fireplace. Come in, then. She walked over to a chest of drawers near her bed and brought out a thick blue cotton robe. She handed it to me and motioned to a closed door. Go change out of your wet clothes. Bring them out in the basin, or they'll take forever to dry. I did as she said, then brought the clothes out and hung them on the pegs in front of the fire. It felt wonderful to stand so close to the fireplace. In the light of the fire, I could see that the skin under my fingernails was actually a little blue. As much as I wanted to linger and warm myself, I joined Devi at her desk. I noticed that the top of it had been sanded down and revarnished, though it still bore a charcoal black ring where the poor boy had charred the wood. I felt rather vulnerable sitting there wearing nothing but the robe she'd given me, but there was nothing to be done about it. After our previous meeting, I fought to avoid looking at the charred ring on her desk. You informed me that the full amount of my loan would be due at the end of the term. Are you willing to renegotiate that? Unlikely, Devi said crisply. But rest assured that if you are unable to settle accounts in coin, I'm still in the market for certain pieces of information. She gave a sharp, hungry smile. I nodded. She still wanted access to the archives. I was hoping you might be willing to reconsider, as you now know the whole story, I said. Someone was performing malfeasance against me. I needed to know that my blood was safe. I gave her a questioning look. Devi shrugged without taking her elbow off the desk, her expression one of vast indifference. What's more, I said, meeting her eyes, it is entirely possible that my irrational behavior might have been partially due to the lingering effects of an alchemical poison I was subjected to earlier this term. Devi's expression went stiff. What? She hadn't known then. That was something of a relief. Ambrose arranged to have me doused with a plumb bob about an hour before my admissions interview, I said. And you sold him the formula. And that's the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I know the pages don't end in a specific place, but damn! <laughs> <laughs> yes, it ends in a specific place for you. Well, I mean, actually not for me, because for me, that's in the middle of the page, but just saying. Hmm. Keeps you turning. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we covered a lot of what I want to, want to talk about on this page yesterday, because uh, she does take pity on him. He's like so wet and bedraggled that she's like, oh, fine come in a little bit, you know, change into something that's not soaking wet so that you can warm up a little bit. Hey man, maybe she just doesn't want him dripping on her floor. 
That is also possible. And I bet that if he asked, she would say that. But that's not why. I know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I also feel like it's a nice detail that she, in the intervening time, has had, like, she cares enough about appearances and about keeping things looking nice in her office that she had the the table revarnished, but the ring uh, from when the thing got burned is still there. And I guess if you wanted to... I would push back and say that, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm going with this, right, Jeremy? I don't know. I think that it's less about having things staying neat and tidy and more of that this is an unpleasant and ugly reminder of a person i trusted betraying me hmm. yeah but the ring's still there so it didn't work the ring's still there but like i think that's because she couldn't get rid of it it was too deeply burned into hmm. it which if you wanted to what i was going to say is like if you wanted to you could read that table as a metaphor for their relationship you know we've smoothed things over but this still happened and it's still between us and i do jeremy hmm. i do thank you You're fine he's is he attempting to not necessarily purposefully guilt trip Devi, but is that what's going to happen here because he tells her about the plumb bob? I don't know if guilt trip, I think he's presenting the facts. This is uncharacteristic of Quoth in that he's going to go talk. Uh, if anything, it's, it's okay, I'm going to get to your point, but I'm, I'm just going to talk my way there. So generally, as we've discussed, Quoth doesn't like to deal head on with situations where he is the source of the problem. And it's unusual for Quoth to decide to talk openly and honestly with the people in his life when he has an issue with them. And it maybe took him a while to arrive at it, but I think this is a sign of development of some growth for Quoth in that he realizes that he, he still does some theatrics. He can't resist putting some theatrics in there because he's a drama king. But ultimately, the best move, instead of doing a grand gesture that might make up an apology, the actual and the mature thing to do is what he's doing. I don't think that guilt is necessarily the point, Jordana, but I think it is a, a happy side effect that he's happy to make use of. He's not trying to guilt trip her, but I think he is hoping that if he presents her with the facts of what happened, it might soften her towards him it might make her see that he was not in his right mind entirely and that it the situation was not entirely in his control and i think it's also just trying to get to the bottom of it once and for all figure out what happened who was responsible for what just clear the air altogether because there are still some lingering questions for him and mm -hmm. for us and this sequence represents one of the rare moments where we actually get a suitable answer to every lingering question in this plot mm -hmm. thread. I just, I want to, I want to point out something, especially because someone, uh, Patrick, not Roth has actually mentioned it in the chat and I want to talk about it. And it's that Quoth is still kind of a teenager here, which is sort of why I brought up the, the guilt tripping aspect because like, he's doing a really mature thing by being like, okay, Debbie, we needed to talk. But also if he is guilt tripping her, then he's also, being a regular 15 year old <laughs> do 15 year old typically guilt trip people that's something i associate with like the elderly i think that they do like i think that 15 year olds a lot of the time will just do the thing that instantly comes to them and i think that the thing that would instantly come to you would be a guilt trip first because first you would be upset and you might not have the wherewithal to really break that down and be like you know what what i'm upset about can be passed over and think about it more maturely, et cetera, et cetera. Like I definitely, as a 15 year old, did not think things mm. through the way I think things through now. Well, it's certainly helpful for both of them that they both had a chance to calm down before they have this conversation. Yes. yes. Oh yeah. Time has definitely been 
good for them. And they probably miss each other. I think Debbie misses him. I think he misses Debbie a bit. And it's just nice to hang out again. Just like it's nice to hang out with all of you every week. Yeah, Isn't that how we all feel right now? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything else to talk about on this page. I too am finished with my notes. So Then we have a letter from Joe who writes on Claymore Swords and Kira Day. Hail pagers! Uh There are a couple of things that you discussed on page 280 slash 281 that I wanted to touch on. First, Quoth's conception of the Kiridae, we see in the text that although Quoth often thinks of the Amir in general as an organization to be respected and that worked for the greater good, we also see him recognizing some of the horrible crimes they committed, such as when he talks about the Duke of Gebeah with Simon and proposes the Amir may have been involved. So although he doesn't recognize the inherent violence and abuses that exist in a system where individuals are allowed absolute power over life, death, and judgment, and therefore fails to see the Amir as a potential threat to the greater good they claim to pursue, there is some recognition of their past crimes and excesses. Kvothe's recognition of the Amir's worst abuses without fully understanding how damaging or abusive such an organization was and could be reminds me of nothing so much as the college history major whose interests don't go beyond Otto von Bismarck or World War II. Stating interest in a great man or a good war without fully confronting the historical realities or contemporary feelings of those who were affected by the historical figures or events they claim to be interested in, though this comparison is not exactly one-to-one, I think that understanding Quoth in this context as a fledgling tanky or weeaboo for the emir can help readers understand his degree of cognitive dissonance when it comes to the historical emir in his head as opposed to the real-life emir that he is chasing after. I loved hearing you guys talk about the two-handed claymore from the Gaelic <laughs> Clay de Moor, pronounced Clay of Moor. I will post the uh, the proper spelling here. Interestingly, it was not called a claymore during its actual time of use, but was referred to simply as a two-handed sword in Scots Gaelic, Clay of da Lave. The term claymore was only widely applied to the two-handed claymore after the Jacobite rebellions and during the Scottish Romantic period. The name claymore originally referred exclusively to the basket-hilted double-edged swords that were popular in the 17th and 18th century and the weapon of choice for the Jacobite rebellions. But after the suppression of Gaelic and traditional Scottish culture, Scottish Romantic writers such as Sir Walter Scott ended up creating and cementing the dominance of the false two-handed claymore over the true basket-hilt claymore. At this point, the misapplied name is so widely known and accepted that it's not very feasible to combat, but I thought it was interesting and wanted to share. Thanks for all the work and time you put into this amazing podcast. Signed, Joe. That was very interesting. I love it. That's the kind of historical detail that I just love. Num, 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 num. If you want to see those basket-hilted broadsword claymores, uh, there's a great uh, movie called Rob Roy starring Liam Neeson that features several excellent sword fights and one of the most dastardly villains I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, And Rob Roy fights with the claymore. The basket-hilt claymore. Yeah, the, the 17th century claymore. And Tim Roth's character, the villain, the the evil, dastardly English fop fights with a small sword. So you get to see two very different weapon styles fight each other. Uh, As to your other point, I think that you raise a really good point about history and the way we perceive history and the way we study history and how that can often be very, very shallow. uh, Because history is often used to reinforce like a nationalist message or, or a piece of propaganda and uh, actual historians, like especially in the 21st century, I'm sure we can all think of lots and lots of examples of people arguing about, you know, returning to tradition without actually understanding the context of that tradition. 
if, if, if you ever encounter a right-wing freak on the internet telling you that we should return to the great traditions of Western civilization, just send them a picture of that Greek amphora that features like two dudes spit roasting another dude, and that'll shut them up, hopefully. <laughs> But we should also return to that tradition. Yes, two dudes spit roasting a dude is good praxis. Mm-hmm. Let us all spit roast together. Yes, listeners, if you are a dude, find another dude and then another dude and spit roast one of those dudes. Suddenly, good very deed happy for the day. I'm not a dude. <laughs> oh, Jordana, dude is a state of mind. I don't think I'm that state of mind. I don't own a bowling ball, or nor do I wear sunglasses and a bathrobe. Haven't you seen that movie? into the spider-verse where the message is anybody can be the dude it what it sounds like to me is like you can take your first steps into a larger dudeverse and <laughs> one of those steps will be literally into a dude <laughs> <laughs> uh on tomorrow's page of the win. win.